the definition of stress is that it's a force. It's a force that causes change in your life. So it's not so much about the stress, it's your, it's your adaptive potential. Can you adapt to the stress in your life? Stress, if it's just a force, it's like gravity. Would you ever say gravity is a bad thing? Uh, I mean, gravity keeps your feet on the ground, it keeps your house on the ground, but gravity could also be the reason you tripped and fell and, and sprained your ankle or, or, or hurt your hand or, you know, you can't say gravity is good or bad. It's, it's how it's used and what happens with it. It's like fire, fire can cook your food or it can burn you. Um, money, money is a force, right? Money can fund terrorist activity and lead to crime and, and terrible things, but it can also put your children through college. So would you say money is good or money is bad? You can't say that. You can't say anything about the nature of money. It's how we use it. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with the author of The Stress Proof Life, chiropractor, business owner, advocate for drugless health solutions, and promoter of health is your birthright. He has a BSc in chemistry from the George Washington University, a BSc in human biology from the National University of Health Sciences, and a doctorate of chiropractic from the National University of Health Sciences. His career has included chiropractor roles at the Injury Center of America, Woodbine Chiropractic and has owned the Mid-Atlantic Clinic of Chiropractic since 2006. I am honored and privileged to introduce you to a remarkable man who serves on the board of Habit for Humanity, has survived growing up in a war-torn country and overcoming financial crisis, and enjoys quality time with his wife Brandy and three beautiful children. Dr. Amir Rashidian, Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. We've had to, we've had some good good laughs and passionate discussion before we've started today. I hear many wonderful stories of how beautiful Iran is as a country and and the people that come from there. You know, what was your favorite memory of uh, during your childhood growing up in northern Iran near the Caspian Sea? You know, like you said, yeah, it, it, it's amazing where I was, was kind of a uh, vacation area with a lot of recreational facilities nearby and the beach was 30 minutes away and we had a, uh, we had a beautiful villa on the water that, you know, it was a two hour drive and uh, the family would go stay there uh, on the weekends and through the summers and it, it was a wonderful time all the way until I was five years old and then everything turned upside down. Which is which is when the when the revolution occurred. Yeah, so so you know that the age of five years old and in the world flips upside down, so to speak, and you've got riots, you've got radical political change, um, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran. You know, what was that experience for you at such a young age? I mean, speaking of that villa and the beach, um, I, I remember the the government had 
issued a decree that no one's allowed to have two homes and they considered a vacation house a second home and and you can't live in two houses so i remember being in that villa with my parents and these um, military police poured in and they started beating my dad and uh, and carried him out of there like he was some kind of criminal and they confiscated that house and um and you know so so that that was a uh that was a bad memory i remember the the uh, riots in the street obviously and seeing some bloody scenes I, I remember one time and this is one of those stressful times is when we um we were staying in the in the capital in tehran and and uh, i was told to to keep the radio on when i go to sleep so after midnight this siren blared through the radio and and it was an air raid siren so we all ran down ran down to the basement of the building with everybody else and we hear this roar of this jet plane overhead followed by the whistle of a bomb that had just been dropped and and this this whistle is getting louder and louder as the bomb is getting closer and closer and you can't tell where it is it's a, it's a high pitched sound so all you can do is just hope and pray that that bomb is not about to fall on your head and we finally heard this giant explosion and uh, the walls kind of shook and the lights flickered and we realized we were still alive but that moment was extreme stress that I'd never felt before, um, you know, and then, and then actually scarier than that was when we moved to America. My mother and I were in Los Angeles in the United States with two suitcases and $500 and, and nothing else homeless. And uh, I think that was actually scarier than, uh, than the bombs dropping on our heads. But uh, yeah, you know, all of that shapes you and turns you into who you are. Yeah, certainly does, you know, massive kind of impact on, on uh, someone's life during their formative years when their brain's growing and they're trying to get a perspective on life to, to go through those um, components as well. Your father had quite an influence in the community. You know, what did you learn from your father during those challenging times that have really supported the way you lead now? You know, when you're seven years old and you're in this dark place and the bombs are dropping and you're scared you look to the person that you look up to the most or you depend on which was dad you know and and i remember looking at him and he was cool calm and collected he smiled when this bomb is coming he just looked me right in the eyes he smiled and i got this assurance that hey it's gonna be fine it's okay now, um, you, you look at that, we, we, we've recently gone through this whole pandemic, uh, this, this global virus that is destroying businesses and, and, and um, you know, scaring, terrifying people. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people have uh, passed away uh, as a result of it. And, and if you're leading an organization, if, you, if, you're, if you're in charge of a department, if you have a team that looks up to you and looks at you, that's who you need to be, is, is you need to have that cool, calm, uh, reserved state where they can look at you and you're not panicking. And you're, 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 you're just kind of reassuring saying, hey, I got this, we're gonna be just fine. Even if you don't, because you're, you're not doing it for you, you're doing it for them and, and they need they need you. They need to see. So I called in everybody in my team, and there's there's twelve of us, and called us all in a room, and I said, "Hey guys, they're shutting everything down. You know, we were deemed essential, so we have to keep working. But that means people aren't allowed to come out of their house, which means business is going to go down, revenue is probably going to go down, and um, what I want you guys to decide and think: this is how it's going to be for the rest of our lives. 
let's say nothing's ever going to change. It's never going to get better. How would we design a business and how would we conduct business? What do we need to institute as new procedures, protocols? How do we market to still do great in this kind of world, in this economy? Let's plan that. And we kind of brainstormed. And instead of focusing on all the terrible things that are happening, we start focusing on, hey, how to, how to do our business in a good way and enjoy it and still make a profit. And it ended up being just like that as we, we've actually been able to stay profitable, didn't have to lay anybody off. Uh, um, our team is still growing. Our patients are still coming in and, and it ended up working out, but we had to be willing to change a lot of things. And it, it started with that mindset of, I'm going to stay calm and, and I'm going to show you it's okay. It, first off, there are certain things we can't control. So let's just control the things we can, which is our state of mind, our personal energy state, and uh, and 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 a sense of enthusiasm that's not false or fake, but optimistic. And it's a it's a really good approach, and we've seen that from those who have been successful during this time have taken that approach. You know, people, a lot of people talk around collaborative leadership, but in the end, when there is uncertainty and crisis, people look up to for someone to lead them. And if you can make some decisions, you can have a level of certainty, it provides hope. And that's what people look for. So oh, just kudos to you for, for making that decision early and you know, obviously learning that from your dad as well, which I think is, is fantastic. You, you spoke about moving to America and having just two suitcases, $500 in your hand. You know, you're 11 years old. What was what did the experience of spending, you know, those first two months homeless in America and in a brand new country have on you as a teenager? Wow. Um, well, sympathy for anyone else who's been homeless is is one big one. Um, you, you, you don't, you, you never feel more alone than when you don't speak the language, and and everyone looks different than you and you have no idea what they think of you i mean going to school and sitting in the back of the classroom having no idea what the teacher is talking about and what the other students are thinking or learning and then trying to learn uh the language there's uh, there's there's a lot going on um so um you, you know what's really neat is while we were going through that we were helped by a lot of people you know, there, there, there were families who'd say, okay, you can spend a week with us, you know, and so on. And then we found this one lady who had three kids uh, who said she was looking for a place to live also. And we ended up uh, renting a small two bedroom apartment where my mother and I lived in one bedroom and, and this lady and her three kids lived in the other bedroom and we shared the, the apartment together. And, and you, you know, it's just, you, you don't know. If you're a child, you don't know any better so you, you you're always content and you, you're always okay you know if if i was now in that situation i would be different you know and i think we can learn a lot about life looking at children they seem happy you know if i go to iran right now i go to one of these old villages that still might not have plumbing and and power lines and and so on you look at the kids they're laughing and playing mm. And they're content and they're, they make the best of every situation. So I, I think that's that's another lesson is just just be like a child and just make the best uh, of every situation because it's it's never as bad as you think. And that's an interesting you know, point there. And I've, I've traveled to quite a few countries around the world and it's generally those places that have less are more content and more happy in their life. 
than those who have everything available to them. It's a fascinating insight to, for people to realize that happiness is not around the material things that you have. It's just the enjoying the simple things in life. And oh, yeah. as you 100%. say, kids, kids show this all the time. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, when, when, when we would go out and play soccer, um, the, the, the park across the street from our house got turned into a POW camp and they, they started keeping prisoners of war uh, and, and they would escape. The Iraqi prisoners would escape and there'd be sh bullets flying through the street and we'd all just run inside and hide. And then the bullets would stop flying around. We'd go outside and play soccer again. <laughs> I mean, it, that was just, that was life. And, and you know, like, okay, well, that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, wow. So those experiences, you know, um, of those early days in America led you to devoting time and energy and supporting the homeless and children. You know, what do you think can be done by government and society to reduce the number of people that are living without the shelter of a home? You know, um, it, it's, it's, you, we got to help them help themselves is the biggest thing. Um, a, a gentleman showed up uh, in our lives. Uh, amazing. He, he was a, a doctor and an OBGYN, uh, very successful. And one day out of the blue, he told my dad, I think your family should live on the East Coast in America and uh, they shouldn't be in Los Angeles. So I'm going to buy you a house, a, a small townhouse. I'm going to buy you this house. I'm not going to give it to you for free. Um, you're going to pay for it, but um, but you know we're going to keep your payments low. I'm not going to charge you any interest. But I think you should move your family in over there, and and that's what he did. He basically bought a house and gave it to us. But he, you know, it wasn't a handout. It was more of a hand up where I say, okay, you still have to work and you still have to make house payments. You were paying rent anyway, so here let's let's help you have a house. And in fact, that's been one of my dreams is one day I'd love to buy a house for somebody and 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 kind of, you know, pay it forward because that 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 gentleman like like an angel that just showed up out of the blue really helped us out. And one of the reasons I'm on the board of Habitat for Humanity is that's what this organization does. They're they're the largest home builder on the planet. And, uh, and what they do is they build low cost homes using volunteers and, and donations. And then they, they sell that house at a low price with low interest to a family that otherwise couldn't afford a house like that. Mm, brilliant. Now, you've just used a term there that I think is the best term I've heard this year. And that is the hand up rather than the hand out. Oh, this is such a great term. I'll be using that now. <laughs> In, you know, why did you decide, so we'll, just, we'll move on a little bit further down, you know, in your life here. Why did you decide to pursue a career as a doctor and in particular as a chiropractor? You know, um, my dad and I were traveling before we left Iran to come to America. My dad wanted to show me how, you know, people lived, uh, the underprivileged. And so he took me to this village uh, uh, and, and uh, it was on the side of a mountain, very beautiful scenery, no, no motorized vehicles there, mud huts instead of homes. And while we're there observing this, uh, a woman went into labor. She was in tremendous amount of pain and there were no doctors or hospitals in this area. There was just a midwife. The midwife walked over to deliver the baby and then stood up and said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. There's no heartbeat. The baby's not alive. 
And unfortunately, uh, this lady's going to die. I can't do anything. And she actually left. And all the people who had gathered around, they one by one started to walk away and leaving her alone to say goodbye to her husband. And uh, at the age of nine, I was literally looking into the eyes of this woman who was just told she's not going to live another few hours. And I knew deep inside that she was going to slowly suffer the agony, the pain that she was, and it was just going to keep getting worse and worse. And she was pass away in her husband's arms. And I started to have this panic attack where, you know, your chest feels really tight and you're having trouble catching your breath, your heart's pounding and, and uh, tears were coming down my face. And uh, my dad saw me, picked me up, he held me, he carried me out of there, he calmed me down. And, and the two of us, we climbed down the mountain, we got in our car to drive home. On the drive home, I said, Dad, I don't want to feel like that ever again. Like what, you know, helpless, like there's nothing I can do. He said, what are you going to do about it? I said, why don't I be a surgeon? I'll become a surgeon. I'll be the best surgeon in the whole world. I'll carry my medical bag with me everywhere I go. And I'll just save lives. And that was the plan until 10 years later, I was in college. I went home for Christmas break my sophomore year. And uh, my dad had this big, thick, white neck brace on. And he was, uh, you could tell he was under the influence of some serious painkillers. And he was limp and numb from the shoulders down. He couldn't even lift up his arms to give me a hug to say hello. And uh, we ended up spending my Christmas break, those uh, six, seven weeks, going from doctor to doctor, trying to figure out what's wrong with dad. And every doctor we went to said, this is beyond my scope. You got to go to this other doctor. And we ended up in a neurosurgeon's office. And as you know, neurosurgeons operate on the spine. And the surgeon said, you need a surgery yesterday. We, we need to cut you open in the back of the neck. We're going to break and remove the bones to take pressure off the spinal cord. We're going to put these rods and screws into your neck, fuse your whole neck. And uh, you'll never be able to turn your head again. You may not regain function of your hands, but we're hoping you have less pain. And by the way, there's a chance you're going to die because you're, you're old. Now, dad was 70. And uh, I always say it doesn't matter because there's such a thing as a young 70 and an old 70, <laughs> yeah. you know, so he was the old 70. And uh, so um, we, we uh, talked to two other neurosurgeons. They all said the same thing. We got in a taxi to go home. The doctor had said, go get your affairs in order. Come back in a week. We'll operate. And I was sitting in the back of the taxi with dad's uh, MRIs and x-rays and medical charts and records. And I looked over sitting next to me, I looked at my dad and I could tell looking in his eyes because every bump that taxi was hitting was sending this pain through his entire body. Looking in his eyes, I could tell he didn't want to live anymore. Mm -hmm. It was that far gone. And, uh, and I started to have the same emotions that I did when that woman was dying in that village, uh, just feeling uh, desperate and helpless and uh, having trouble breathing again and chest feeling tight. And well, this uh, taxi driver looked at the two of us in his in his you know rearview mirror, and he said, "Sir, I know you. Uh, I noticed you're in a lot of pain, and and I know you asked me to take you home, but there's a chiropractor down the street, and I, I've heard he helps people like you. Would you like me to take you there instead?" And, and as a 19 year old know it all, I said no. But Dad, being the wise person who was terrified of the surgery they wanted to do on him. He said, sure, let's go check it out. So we ended up in this chiropractor's office. Long story short, he looked at those MRIs and x-rays that I've been carrying. And, and uh, he said, I can help you. And uh, it's going to take a while, but I think I can help you. You're not going to need to stay on medication for the rest of your life. And you don't need that surgery. And so he did. And dad had to go in there every day for six months. But at the end of it, he was able to use his hand again. He was able to do the things he wanted to, like dress himself and feed himself and work and 
provide for the family. And anyways, dad lived another 18 years. He lived a great life after that. He, he didn't have any more neck problems after that. He had full use of his arms and hands. Uh, he would wake up at 88. He was younger than when he was 70 because he'd get up and work out, go exercise, go visit his friends. His friends are in nursing homes, but not him. He would travel across the country and abroad. He enjoyed his life. He lived long enough to stand right next to me as my best man when I got married. Yeah. He lived long enough to meet my first son when he was born and got to hold him. So so I appreciate that tremendously. And, and having witnessed that, I decided I'd love to change things on the inside of a body without cutting them open. That's fantastic. That sounds practically miraculous. Why don't I go become a chiropractor? And uh, so I ended up doing what I'm doing now. That That was gosh, that was 27 years ago. And uh, I've been a chiropractor for a little over 20 years now. That's a, it's an incredible story. And just being able to give people their independence, I think it's so important. You know, the, the last thing you want is to see someone lose their independence where they can't dress themselves, can't feed themselves. That's a, that's a challenging time. And, and obviously for you being able to uncover your meaning in life and your purpose at such a young age is is something that a lot of people don't get to do. You know, there's, there's still so many people in life, uh, later on in life, you still don't know what their meaning is and what they really want to do, and they just kind of float through the world. Uh, so oh, very fortunate for you to, to uncover that at such a young age. I agree. Now, many, peop- many talented people have learned to cope and manage dyslexia. You know, becoming a doctor requires a lot of study and devotion to learning. You know, what strategies were you able to use to rise up through the challenges of your brain seeing words in different patterns? Oh, you know, you know, the, the best thing, the, I, two, two good things. I, I mean, number one, I firmly believe dyslexia is a gift because it has taught me how to think in an auditory fashion. I learn auditorily. I tend to memorize things that I see first time. I don't have to reread because I don't, if, if it takes me, uh, you know, an hour to read something that you can read in two minutes, then I better learn it. <laughs> so so I, once I look at it, I memorize it. So, so it's been very, very good. Um, you become more observant. Um, but I also uh, learned how to work hard because I, I didn't know I had dyslexia until I turned 40 years old. So the first 40 years of my life, I thought I was just slow and dumb. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, or maybe I shouldn't say dumb, but slow and not very smart. And uh, so I just thought I had to work harder. So when everybody else would sleep, I'd stay awake and read and study. And, and, and that work ethic carried on. And now I can't not work hard. Uh, and, and then I have this uh, internal belief that Whatever I can't do, if I just work harder at it, I'll probably be able to do it. So it's it's a good thing, you know. But but when I wrote the book, I I couldn't read it to edit it, and it was taking me forever. And and I I kept falling asleep when I would try to read it myself, and, and I kept thinking I must have written a terrible book. So I <laughs> so I hired an editor to read the book to me on the phone. So every Friday afternoon for two hours. She would call me and she'd read me the book. I'd listen to it and go, oh, that doesn't sound good. Change this to that. And so anyways, it took six and a half years to write the first book. The second book we did much faster, but that one's not published yet. Yeah, exciting. 
Exciting. So for you, what uh, characteristics do you think allow you to be an effective chiropractor? I mean, obviously we've heard a couple of them around, you know, it'd been a real purpose for you and, and finding that, but what else? You know, chiropractic is based on the premise that the human body is self-healing and self-regulating. And uh, so, so uh, I'll give you an example. You know, there's been an opioid crisis in America where a lot of um, people on pain, uh, in pain are being addicted to opioids, uh, um, you know, central nervous system painkillers, and uh, the addiction is killing them. And, and in fact, in, in our town right here, one person dies every week from an opioid addiction. And then the, those are the drugs that are on the streets and so on. Um, but the reason the opioids work is because your body has opioid receptors in the body. Mm. So why were we created or uh, whether you believe in creation or evolution, why, why, why were we created with opioid receptors? Because when humans came to existence, there were no such thing as opioids, right? There were. Your body produces them. Your body will produce endorphins and enkephalins and feel good things. And, and th- th- it's, it's natural morphine that your body produces. You go get a good workout in, you, you release endorphins. You, you go for a long run, you, you know, you release endorphins. And as an athlete, you, you know this, is, is you get that high. That's why we have opioid receptors in our body. So every drug, the reason the drugs work is because you have receptors in your body that make those drugs work and you're activating or deactivating those receptors, but your body can do that naturally yeah. in the right state of mind. And so that's, that's what you have to believe. Now, listen, here's the thing. I can't prove it. Okay. So, so because there's two schools of thoughts, one school of thought is, is mine where I go, okay, your body is self-healing, self-regulating. If you cut your hand, it'll heal. If you cut a piece of steak and throw it in the corner of the room, it's never going to heal. Because it's dead. So, there are differences. There's an internal um, neurologic function, uh, there's brain function, and there's innate intelligence. There's wisdom in the body. So, self healing, self regulating. And my, 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 if my body needs um, antibiotics, it'll produce it. Now, I'm not against taking antibiotics. If, if I had strep throat and my, I'm not healing normally, I'll take the antibiotics. That's not what I'm saying. But your body has the ability to self-heal and self-regulate. And then the other school of thought says that your body is designed to little by little break down, fall apart, and decay and die. And that's the other. And I can't prove them wrong. And I can't prove my philosophy right because there's so much evidence on both sides. So I choose to believe that the human body can do amazing things. And so I expect that from the human body. And I expect that in my patient's lives, when a patient comes in and let's say they, they have asthma, we, we see little kids with asthma all the time. They, they have these asthma attacks, they need the inhaler. Well, I know for a fact that the inhaler is albuterol, which is a, a steroid, which causes the bronchioles to dilate, right? But in a um, sympathetic fight or flight syndrome of the nervous system, where someone's scared, the same thing happens. The human body will dilate its bronchioles, right? And so we can create that in the body without the drugs. And so we, we adjust their spine. We remove the interference from the nerves that go to the lungs. And then we teach them how to do certain things with exercises and so on, certain breathing techniques. And it activates those things in the body and it works. A lot of kids don't need those inhalers anymore, or, or we've had people with digestive issues and it it could be because there's nerve interference in their spine. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have little babies who have colic. They cry for hours at a time. Well, why would a baby cry? Is is the baby scared of what's happening with the coronavirus? Because a newborn has no idea. Does does the baby know that there's an election coming up in America? Is, is, is the baby afraid the stock market might crash? The baby doesn't know any of those. If a baby's crying and that baby is not hungry and the baby's not wet and doesn't need a change, then that means the baby's uncomfortable in other ways. Hmm. And so what I believe is when you take the interference out of the nervous system and the brain and, and, and the nerves, the spinal cord can relax, the baby's more comfortable. You've seen lots of children with a little bit of chiropractic care overcome that. So, so what makes me the chiropractor, like you asked, is, is this one belief that for the most part, and I, I won't make it a, make it a um, certainty, you know, for the most part, your body knows what to do in every circumstance and in the right environment, it can react and respond to the stress in your life properly to increase your chance of survival. And in fact, you can thrive. Mm. And leading on from that, and I'm sure people that are listening right now can really feel your passion for helping children. What was it like to see firsthand the utilization of your chiropractic skill sets to enable your firstborn to commence breathing shortly after birth? Oh my gosh. Talk about stressful situation. You know, before we had kids, my wife and I would argue all the time because I said we shouldn't have kids. I don't want any kids for one reason, ear infections. And, and, and it, <laughs> because my earliest, actually, because you had asked earlier, what's your childhood memories? Actually, my earliest childhood memories, ear infections. I remember having massive ear infections, terrible pain in both ears. And, uh, and there, there were times where my mother would just hold me and cry because she didn't know how to help me. And I, I didn't know what to do. And the antibiotics weren't working. I was getting penicillin shots, I, you know, and, and all of that. You know how they say you'll grow up and forget about it. I still remember how those needles felt going in and, and how painful those penicillin shots were. So I said, you know, kids get ear infections. We should not have kids. And my wife was saying, that's ridiculous. Not every kid has an ear infection. So I found this article that said uh, 90% of children, and it compared children who whose mom or dad is a medical doctor versus children whose mom or dad is a chiropractor. And the article said 90% of kids whose mom and dad is a medical doctor have an ear infection by the age of two, 70% by the age of one, and 50% have chronic ear infections, which is more than one ear infection. And I said, look, these are privileged kids whose medicine cabinet at home is a real medicine cabinet. Like they actually have real medicine in their medicine cabinet because their mom or dad is a, is, you know, is a medical doctor. And, uh, but then, then we read the rest of the article and it said that if mom or dad is a chiropractor, less than 26% ever, ever get an ear infection, not 90% by the age of two, but less than 26% ever. And I, I didn't realize at the time I was already a chiropractor. I didn't realize you could adjust children or newborns, especially because, you know, their, their, their spine is so fragile and delicate and their neck is so floppy, you know? So, um, I started taking this postdoctorate course uh, that was in Chicago and I'd fly to Chicago on the weekends and study and it was a it was weekend courses for a full year and I went there and and got this education on pediatric chiropractic and how to take care of uh, pregnant moms and how to take care of the newborn from a chiropractic standpoint well um, we we had our first son and I have three sons but the first one he's he's now 10 and a half years old when he was born he wasn't breathing 
and it was an emergency C-section. They, they, they pulled him out and he was awake. He was alert, but he was flaring his nostrils and he hadn't cried yet. And they said, we need to take him to the neonatal intensive care unit. And I know from my training, when you go to the NICU, they just put you under oxygen. They slap you and they, they slap the baby and they roll the baby around, try to get the baby to breathe normally, but they don't do anything else. And, and I know for a fact, if, if something gets misaligned at the top of the spine and it interferes with the brainstem or the vagus nerve, it can affect the baby's breathing. And I said, I need a second with my son. And they, that, you know, the, the nurses said, no, we got to take him to the neonatologist right now. I said, he's my son. I need a second just to say, so he's in this cart, this metal cart with wheels. And, and, you know, my wife, Brandy is on the table. They're sewing her back up after a C-section. And she keeps saying, let him look at the kid, let him look at the kid. So finally they step aside. I check my son's neck and you check newborns with the tip of your pinky. It's a very small, very gentle thing you do. It's very comfortable. So I found this area on the back of his ear on the right side uh, where the bone felt like it was misaligned. And I, all you do is you hold it. If you know what position to put it in, you just hold it and apply some gentle sustained pressure. Well, next thing you know, within a second, the muscles relaxed and his head just kind of fell back into my hand. I could tell the tension was gone and bone was probably back in place. And I said, let's go. So, so this nurse was pushing his cart towards the NICU. We, we go down the hallway, we come around the corner. As we come around the corner, NICU is just within sight. We can see the admitting nurse waiting for us. My son started crying and he wasn't blue in the face anymore at that time. He was actually red. And he was breathing. I, I heard his voice for the first time. I started breathing too, because that entire time, I think I was holding my breath too. But anyways, we got, we got to the front of NICU and this admitting nurse took a look at my son, looked at the nurse that was pushing the cart and said, what are you doing here? He doesn't need to be here. He needs to be in his mother's arms. You take him back. And we turned around and we went back and, and my wife, Brandy, got to nurse him and hold him. And, and you know, in 10, 10 and a half years, he's never had an ear infection, thank goodness. I don't know if we would have kept him if he had an ear infection, we'd take him out. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful story. And, you know, to have such an impact and influence on your child so early in his, <laughs> in his life. And, you know, it's amazing how you can just do something really, really small and it can have a major impact on, on someone's life. Um, fantastic how do you live your mission to help create a healthier next generation by improving the lives of children and families today you know i i think it's it's education it's educating um parents on um how to allow their kids to experience sickness um, it's educating parents how to handle pain themselves. It's educating um, uh, and empowering them to know that they they can overcome things, that they have what it takes inside of them. Um, you know, it, it, this is the philosophy. And, and, and I'm, I believe every scientific discovery had to have a philosophic basis to it. And, and this is one of those things where, okay, I can't prove it to you, but I think this is right. And my philosophy is your health is dependent on how much stress you can handle. 
So if you can handle a lot of stress, you're going to be generally healthy. If you can't handle a lot of stress, you're going to get sick. Um, I've heard you speak about how uh, people get on go on holiday and they get sick as soon as they get there, right? Be why? Well, be because before they left, they went through a lot of stress, you know, and 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 then you know they're they're not handling things properly. They're not managing their their um, systems, you know, properly. And so um, I think how healthy you are depends on how much stress you can handle. And how wealthy you are depends on how much stress you can handle, how successful you become in your career, in your business, in your family, how great a father or mother or parent or a sibling or a spouse you are. All of it, all of it depends on how much stress you can safely handle because anything good, you have a dream, you have a vision, you have a desire, you wanna go get another degree. You want to have more children. You want to get married and you've been single. You want to start a new business and you want to change. You want to write a book. You want to start a great podcast like yours. All of that comes with a lot of stress. All of it. And the reason people don't succeed, I believe, is because they weren't equipped to handle the stress of it. So you train for that stress. So that's that's my philosophy when it comes to that. Mm. And so that, that fits in really well with, uh, in 2016, you authored the book, The Stress-Proof Life, and it uncovers the secret to health, wealth, and happiness, which you're just starting to share there as well. What is The Stress-Proof Life all about? You know, I call it stress-proof because uh, it's, it's based on the concept of a bulletproof vest. If, you, if, if, if someone's wearing a bulletproof vest, and they get shot in the chest, right on the vest, it's still going to hurt. Mm -hmm. It'll probably knock them down, but it's not going to kill them. And that's, that's what it is. You put on this stress-proof vest, you're still going to experience stress. Uh, it, it, it may still cause some problems for you, but you're going to get through it and you're going to be okay. And it's fine. And that's, that's what it's about. It's like uh, a really great self-esteem. If a child has really good, and I learned this from Nathaniel Brandon, they call him the, the, the father of self or the grandfather of self-esteem. He's written some great books, uh, uh, six pillars of self-esteem and so on. But he talks about how if a child has really good self-esteem, it doesn't mean that child will never get depressed. It just means when they get depressed, they get over it faster and they recover better and they're stronger afterwards. That's all it is. And if someone has really great immune system, it does not mean they'll never get sick. It just means if they get sick, they get better faster and they can handle it easier. And, and that's what it's about. So stress-proof life is, is not stress-free. You're still going to experience stress. Uh, but you're going to be equipped to handle it. And you're going to be equipped to handle it because, number one, you're going to take care of your body in all three dimensions of health, which is psychological and physical and biochemical. And we can certainly get into that if you like. Uh, I think that's good because stress is a word that is, that is uh, used in a generalized way in society because people think that stress is bad, but it's actually not. It, it, it is actually plays a really important part in our neurochemistry and our biochemistry um, in actually making sure our immune system gets built. However, there are, there are, you can overdo it like anything, like it's, it's like driving a Formula One car. Yeah, sure, it can go pretty fast, but you can't keep revving it and at maximum um, throttle the whole time. Otherwise, it, you know, things will break. 
so how does from your perspective how does what what role does that stress play yeah i love the way you said that because yeah that that race car can only you know after probably a couple thousand kilometers you've got to retire the car which you know your average car will you know you take care of it it'll do a couple hundred thousand um so so the, the definition of stress is that it's a force it's a force that causes change in your life. So it's not so much about the stress, it's your, it's your adaptive potential. Can you adapt to the stress in your life? Stress, if it's just a force, it's like gravity. Would you ever say gravity is a bad thing? Uh, I mean, gravity keeps your feet on the ground, it keeps your house on the ground, but gravity could also be the reason you tripped and fell and, and sprained your ankle or, or, or hurt your hand. Or, you know, you can't say gravity is good or bad. It's, it's how it's used and what happens with it. It's like fire. Fire can cook your food or it can burn you. Um, money. Money is a force, right? Money can fund terrorist activity and lead to crime and, and terrible things. But it can also put your children through college. So you, would you say money is good or money is bad? You can't say that. You can't say anything about the nature of money is how we use it. Anger is another one. Anger, uh, a lot of people say, oh, anger is a bad thing. Yeah, but there's also some people who get angry at their situation and they make a change. So someone who's overweight might say, I'm, I'm really angry at, at, at my situation and I, I'm resolving to make a change. And all of a sudden you use that, that force for good. So um, stress, you know, what's funny because you, you, you said a lot of people blame stress for their illness and then, but stress is what's keeping them healthy, which you're, you're hundred percent right. You know, back in the 1980s, uh, they said fat is bad. Everything, uh, you know, you know, fats causing sickness and and so on. And everything became fat free. Fat free was was the thing. In fact, a whole industry, billions of dollars, were spent on fat free products that came in a box or or you know, processed. And and what happened to obesity? It increased. What happened to heart disease? It increased. And then, so, so then back in the early 1990s, you know, this is when sugar-free soda was invented and zero calorie drinks and sugar-free gum and sugar-free chocolate and crazy stuff started being invented was in the early 90s. And sugar is the bad thing. It wasn't the fat, it was sugar, right? And the minute that, that happened, you go, okay, diabetes should have been eradicated, right? If sugar was causing diabetes, but the CDC will tell you it, it, that, that, that the, uh, the cases, new cases of diabetes quadrupled year after year, beginning in 1991. And obesity got even worse, especially in America. So you go, well, then if, if it wasn't the fat and it wasn't the sugar, then what was it? It must be stress. Stress is the reason everybody's sick and stress is the reason everybody's got diabetes and arthritis and obesity and heart disease and so on and stroke. And you know what? Let me tell you, um, if you remove stress, what do you have left? The, the best way to get rid of stress is, is leave your family and quit your job. You really want to do that. You want to leave your family, leave your job, you know, and, 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 you know become a couch potato and, and live in somebody's basement and, uh, you know, eat, 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 you know, I don't know, uh, cereal for, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, you can't, you don't want to, that's not life. Uh, researchers did this. You, you talked about how the immune system is supported by stress. hundred percent correct. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's, but it's a fact. Um, the researchers took amoeba, single cell organism uh, in these Petri dishes, and they removed all the stress. They said, let's give them the perfect temperature, 
perfect amount of food. You know, they gave them uh, high definition TVs and Tempur-Pedic beds. I mean, these, these little microorganisms had everything they ever dreamed about. And all of them died prematurely. They could not live. And in fact, the, the outcome of the study was that stress sustains life and life requires stress. So if you're trying to reduce stress, it means you're taking a step closer to the grave. You try to reduce stress, that means you want to you, you want to do less, be less. How many of you are going to get stronger by going to a gym, lifting less weight today than you did two days ago and get stronger? You're not going to get stronger. You only get stronger when you challenge your body by putting more stress. So you have to invite the stress. In fact, choose your stress. So my stress might be, hey, I want to I want to grow my organization. I want to we just recently doubled the size of our practice from one location to two locations. We have plans to open a third and a fourth office. All of that's going to come with stress. So I go, OK, if I, you know, if I don't train for that stress, then uh, I shouldn't do it. I need to be prepared for it. Mm. And so. How do we, you know, in, in your opinion, then how do people start to recognize the early signs that they are compounding too much stress because and and people forget this uh, a lot of the times as well you know say we have uh, someone who's at work and and they've got a job and uh, and they're making sure they don't have too much stress in their job or or they have the right amount of stress in their job but then they forget that they have stress from family life from training from elections happening from COVID, etc. And it keeps compounding. So how do we recognize the signs that we may have overloaded the stress too much? So I, I, one, the easiest way, I'll, I'll tell you two, two ways. For number one is, is monitor your sleep. If you're having trouble sleeping, um, the stress is getting to you because the more tired you are, the easier you should be able to fall asleep. So if you're one of those people who says, I'm too tired to sleep, uh, or I was so tired I couldn't fall asleep, uh, that's that's a red flag right there. That's a big issue. Um, the next thing is monitor and watch your food cravings because your body is telling you it's deficient in something. And uh, so, so here's how it goes. You know, uh, we're designed to handle stress. Obviously, you know, when cortisol goes up, it, it, it protects you it keeps you alive and so on but when it's constant and 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 an example would be let's say let's say i have a desk job where the minute i show up to work first off i have to sit through rush hour traffic very stressful just to get to work on time then when i'm sitting at work uh my boss yells at me all day and then when it's time to go home he drops a stack of paperwork on my desk says don't leave till this is done so i get home late and as soon as i get home now my wife is yelling at me why are you late again I had to put the kids to bed by myself. Your dinner is cold. You know, you're always late. You don't care about your family. That's the person who goes to bed and can't fall asleep because thoughts are circulating in their head over and over. Why? Because their body is in fight or flight. When you're in fight or flight, you can't fall asleep. It's like being chased by a pack of hungry wolves. Can you stop and take a nap when these crazy animals are chasing you? It's not possible. So it's the same. Your body thinks you're in you're in fight or flight, the saber-toothed tiger, you know, the proverbial caveman thing. It, 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 you can't fall asleep, not until you feel safe, not until you leave that fight or flight. But if you know tomorrow it's the same thing, you're going to have to sit through the same rush hour, go to the same boss, work at the same desk, come home the same way. It's not going to end. So, so after weeks of that, your body is depleted in certain 
chemicals, certain substances. And the first thing you have is massive sugar cravings because your body wants a lot of energy. So that's the person who goes, there was a bowl of M&Ms or a bowl of Skittles or any candy, you know, and I couldn't stop. I had to eat the whole thing. You notice yourself doing that. You're in stage one of that extreme stress. And unless you change things, that's going to get worse. Now, stage two is when your body's now depleted of triglycerides as well, because the precursor to all the hormones, including uh, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, growth hormone, cortisol is cholesterol and cholesterol and triglycerides. And your body gets depleted in that. And for you to sustain your energy and continue to maintain bodily functions, your cravings are going to switch. You still will want the sugar, but now you want fat too. So instead of the Skittles and M&Ms, now you want ice cream and donuts because they have high fat content and you, your body needs that too. So you're like, I, you know, I used to not crave, but now I crave ice cream. All I need ice cream every night uh, to go to sleep. And, and okay, you, you've gone into that second stage. That's the stage of wired and tired. You're, you're in a state of hyper alertness, but you're tired. You don't feel like you have enough energy, but you can't sleep properly. And then the last stage is exhaustion. I'm simplifying this. There's a lot more to it, but this is all you need to know is you start to get exhausted. And then you're sitting there listening to a really exciting podcast like this one right now, and you're falling asleep. If you're falling asleep during this podcast right now or or, or any of these series, then then that means you're exhausted. And 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 or you're, you're watching a movie and you keep falling asleep or you're sitting in church and you can't stay awake. You're sitting in a classroom in school, you can't stay awake. You're exhausted, that's the last stage. Guess what your food cravings are now? Because your adrenal glands are being depleted, you need minerals and, and you're starting to crave salty foods. You want potato chips and pretzels all the time. You still want the ice cream and donuts too, but you wanna put salt on the ice cream <laughs> and, and, and just monitor those things. That, that kind of explains those stages. And, and in that exhausted stage, that's a very dangerous state because that's when, if you don't change it, a heart attack is imminent. Hmm. We can pretty much guarantee a heart attack from that. Something's gonna happen. Something's gonna crash. Something's gonna collapse something's going to go seriously wrong. You have to fix it. And it's like a car. If you're not regularly checking the oil um, and you, or you're hearing a rattle and you don't quite fix it, well, what's going to happen? It's going to cost a lot more money, right? <laughs> because it's going yes. to break. And the body's the same. The body, the body isn't something that will bend and, um, and move with whatever you throw at it. It's got a breaking point. We've got to look after it. I, I love that car analogy because I tell my patients, if you if you got a brand new car when you got your driver's license for the first time and they told you this car has to last you for the rest of your life, how well would you take care of that car? You're never going to get another one. This is the only one you get. Well, it's the same thing with your body. Yes. So talking about your body, how do you ensure that you manage your energy and your performance so that you can lead your team in the best possible manner? So, so I call it the, the simple seven, seven things that, that I believe you can do that, that don't take a lot of time, uh, don't require a lot of effort, but you should do them every single day. Um, and, and I listed them uh, in, in, the, in the book, but I'm going to share it with you. Um, one of those is sunlight. 
Uh, a lot of us believe that sunlight is dangerous and it can cause cancer. And, and I'm telling you, yes, it can. But not if you're just spending 15 minutes a day outside in the sun. It's not going to cause cancer. Um, and if you don't have any pre-existing issues, you know, you're not extremely sensitive to sunlight and so on. 15 minutes a day, um, that sunlight, when it hits your skin, your skin will take cholesterol and convert it to vitamin D. You know, I, I was a chemistry major in, in college and you look at the molecular structure of cholesterol, it's almost identical to vitamin D. And we know vitamin D deficiency leads to heart disease. Uh, it, it, vitamin D deficiency is required for your bones to stay healthy, for your joints to stay healthy. And the sunlight can also balance your serotonin levels, which when they get depleted, you end up with depression, and which is what they call seasonal affect disorder is, is people get depressed when, when there's day, less daylight and less sunlight and so on. You know what? spend some time in the sun. Uh, it, it, it's phenomenal. Obviously, if, if you allow yourself to burn, if your skin burns, now you're damaging tissues, you're mutating DNA, you're, you're going to lead, it's going to lead to cancer, don't burn, you know, but without sunscreen 15 minutes a day in the sun is going to really balance a whole lot of things. Um, another one is rhythmic repetitive exercise, like walking, walking with your arms swinging, you know, you're not pushing a stroller, you're not holding a dog leash, that's not going to work. Because the cross crawl pattern of one arm and the opposite leg working together. So this arm swings forward with the opposite leg and so on uh, that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain. So it's very, very beneficial for your mood, for your psychology, for everything. That's why people can think better when they go for a walk. So you go for a 15 to 20 minute walk in the sun. Now you, you just killed two birds with, with one stone. And another one would be uh, uh, music, music, uh, music is so incredibly powerful. Uh, you can hear the first two or three notes of your favorite song and your personal energy state changes instantly. You, you know, if you've been at a wedding or a party where you have some old folks sitting in, at tables, you know, and they, they look like they can't even walk without their walker. And all of a sudden this song comes on and they fly out of their seat and start dancing like wild <laughs> animals, <laughs> you know, screaming and jumping. <laughs> and we all know, we all have those songs that really just turn something on inside of us, you know, and, and I bet you that there are songs that remind you of your first love. There are songs that will take you back to a time in your life where you felt invincible, you know, which, which is what they athletes call being in the zone. It, 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 what, what's the music doing? It's not putting anything in your body or taking anything out. It's activating what you already had inside of you. I had an aunt who was told she was going to die from cancer. And she said, I'm going to celebrate. I have six weeks left. I'm going to celebrate. And she, she played this one song and danced to it every day. And there, there were times where because of chemotherapy and weakness, it, we, people had to hold her up by her arms and she would just tap her foot and nod her head. That's all she could do. That's the only dancing she could do. She listened to that same song every day, but then all of a sudden she started to get her strength back and she started to feel better and she was able to dance again. She didn't die for 10 years. Wow. She lived 10 wow. years instead of six weeks and it was because of music kept her alive. She still died of cancer, but she enjoyed those 10 years and she literally listened to that one song had, had a mini, she called it a mini party. She'd have a party every day, once a day, listen to that song. Um, another one is supplementation. Now, now if, if you, if you don't believe in supplements, I, I totally understand. You want to get everything through food. That's fine. But we have to make sure there's no deficiencies in our body. And, and there are certain basic things that every human body needs. And, and you know, it's all over the place. Nutrition is huge. 
But if you are going to use supplements, you want to use whole food supplements, foods that supplements that come from directly from food. And, and we can't, we don't have time to get into it, but there are these things called synthetic vitamins and there's fractionated vitamins. And then there's whole vitamins. Just make sure it's whole. If it's whole, it has all the supporting ingredients and it's going to be beneficial for you. So, you know, B vitamins are huge. Um, uh, very, very important. And uh, things like fish oil, I believe is, is good. You know, it's, it's hard to get, fish oil just from food, you know, if you eat sushi, you're getting some of that. Um, but, but, you know, th those are some of the things, vitamin D, if you're getting from the sun, great. If not, if you need to supplement to check, test your levels and make sure. So, so that's, that's one sleep is a huge one. Sleep is tremendous. We have got to make sure we're not drinking coffee, uh, later, late in the day because the caffeine caffeine has a three hour half-life. So three hours after you drink your cup of coffee, half the caffeine is still in your system. Three hours later, a quarter of the caffeine is still in your system. So you shouldn't, you know, if, if you go to bed at 9 p.m., you, you really shouldn't drink coffee even at 3 p.m. It should be earlier than that um, if you are going to drink coffee. So you should sleep in pitch black darkness. I had a patient who uh, I found out had tried to commit suicide and she was in a hospital. And this, this lady was a police officer who worked nights. And shift work is so, I mean, it, in the United States, they actually classified shift work as a carcinogen, meaning shift work causes cancer. Well, the, the reason for that is because our, our circadian rhythm cannot be disrupted all the time. And uh, trying to sleep in daylight, your, your skin, so, so when you when your skin is exposed to sunlight, you produce vitamin D. When your skin is in darkness, you produce melatonin. And the melatonin is important for you as well. By the way, people over supplement with melatonin and that's a whole different topic. Uh, if, if you do take melatonin supplements, try to do less than five milligrams um, be, because too much can make your body think you already slept. Having said that, this patient of mine is in the hospital. She has just attempted suicide, uh, thankfully not successful. And, uh, and I said, well, your life is great. What's going on? You know, you, you, you just got a promotion. She, she moved up in the ranks in the police department. She has two wonderful children. She has a great husband. Financially, they're doing well. They just built a house. They built this brand new house and, uh, and, and built it exactly as they wanted. It's like, what's wrong? And she said, I have no idea, but for the past you know, few months, ever since we moved into that new house, I've been getting more and more tired, more and more irritable. I don't like myself. I don't like my life. And that's why I wanted to kill myself. And I'm thinking, where are you sleeping? I know you work nights. So her schedule was that she, um, she, she, she would put the kids to bed and go to work. She would come, she'd be done with work in the morning. She'd go pick up the, uh, go wake up the kids, give them their breakfast, take them to school. She would sleep while the kids are in school. She'd go pick up the kids from school, spend the evening with them. When the kids went to bed, she'd go to work. And, uh, and I said, so where are you sleeping? She said, in my bedroom. I said, okay, describe your bedroom. She said, oh, you know, it's in that new house that we just built. And we have this beautiful skylight over the master bed. In the bed. And I go, you're sleeping under the sun? She said, yeah, it's really nice. I said, well, you can't produce any melatonin and you're going to get depressed. And the depression is going to make you want to kill yourself. She said, that's what it is. So, you know, obviously she was under chiropractic care as well. But, but I said, go sleep in the... Uh, guest bedroom if you're sleeping there in the day and get really dark curtains and and darken everything no light should come in when you open your eyes you should feel like your eyes are still closed that's how dark it should be she did that and 
started to get better and her mood returned to normal and everything got better. So sleep is, is, is tremendous. I don't know if I said all seven uh, of the simple, Oh, breathe. Breathing is tremendous. Yeah. You know, there's rhythms, right? You, you have a heartbeat, you have a circulatory system, you have rhythm of your hormones. Everything's a rhythm in your body. Cerebral spinal fluid flows around you in rhythm. So breathing is a rhythm, right? You can let your breathing be a byproduct of your, uh, inability to handle stress, or you can change your breathing pattern to help you handle stress better. So um, inhale, when you breathe in, that's sympathetic, which is fight or flight. So so right now, if someone showed up and they scared me, I would gasp. But if I found out it was a friend of mine playing a joke on me, I would breathe a sigh of relief. That's exhale. When we get stressed, our breathing pattern becomes one to one, one in, one out. When we're not stressed, it's a one-to-two ratio, one in, two out. So to balance that and make it happen yourself, to shift your body from fight or flight to rest and repair, just count. Count to five when you breathe in, count to 10 when you exhale. Make sure your exhale is two times longer, twice as long as your inhale. And when you do it like that, exactly 10 breaths, you leave that fight or flight. In fact, if you have insomnia, try this tonight. Take a slow breath in, make sure your exhale is twice as long, 10 breaths, you'll fall asleep. I, I pretty much can guarantee it. Very good. I've been doing that, <clears throat> doing that less than 10 breaths, falling asleep since I was you know, a, a young swimmer, probably at the age of seven or eight. It's very powerful. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm. The, you know, I, I want to answer with the first thing that comes to my mind. And um, it's, it's ev every day there's something new uh, when I look at my children because they are just changing and growing. And I, I feel like I'm a dad to different kids every day because they, they keep growing. And they, it's, it's amazing how much and how well uh, they do things. So I, I always try to experience new things with them and, and different things with them, just watching them grow and, and try new things. You know, um, if, if you've been, if you know how to do something, but you're teaching a child how to do it for the first time, it'll feel like you're doing it for the first time. And, uh, and that's, that's a good feeling. I think you should, you should attempt that all the time. Beautiful. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Wow. I love that. I would say, um, I want to, I want to find out why, um, why there's such a big discrepancy in the, the, the so-called haves and have-nots. I'd love to find out why it is that, that somebody, because, you know, you, you, everyone has their um, preconceptions and, and notions of why someone will succeed and why someone won't, or why is someone so healthy? And we all know people who, who do nothing right. You know, I just shared these seven things where you sleep right and breathe right and eat right and exercise right. And you know, all these, you know, but we know people who do those things and they're still sick and they, they have problems. And then you got other people who um, who, who uh, do nothing right and they're healthy. 
and, and they, they never get sick. And, and it's not genetics because we know genes are activated and deactivated based on our environment. There's something else. And so, you know, as a chiropractor, I go, okay, it has to be the nervous system because if, if their nervous system isn't balanced, then, then their body can't function properly. Yeah. But there are some people who get regular chiropractic care too. And there's still something wrong. And then you've got these people who uh, come out of the worst situations, you know, from uh, the lowest poverty levels and they rise to the top. Then you have people who uh, start, you know, at the top and they go even further. And then you've got some people who start at the top and crash and you've got everything in between. And, and there's, there's truly no answer, but, but I think that um, the, the problem to solve is, is it true that it's all on the inside? Is it true that it's, it's, it's all our decisions and, and how we view things and, um, and going for it, you know, uh, the burning desire followed by relentless pursuit and great faith that you can have the things that you want. And, and I wonder if that's what gets turned on in some people and that's what makes them succeed. So I'd love to solve that, the, the success dilemma. Very good. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? It's, it's joy, massive joy. Just, just be happy because there's, there's always a reason to be happy. There's always something to be um, thankful for. Uh, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of goodness out there. I firmly believe, I think Einstein said this. Einstein said there are two ways to look at the world, that there are no miracles or that everything is a miracle. And his tendency was, we have to believe everything's a miracle. And I, I do think everything's a miracle. When you look around, there's, there's, it's not just one virus. There's, there's trillions of viruses, trillions of bacteria. In fact, you look at human bodies, there's more bacterial cells in the human body than there are human cells in the human body. So there's more of us in us, more of them in us than us in us. <laughs> but, uh, so so you, you put that aside, you go, there's fungus, there's yeast. There's predators, there's bad animals, there's, there's um, natural disasters that can happen. There's bad people that want to hurt people. Then there's autoimmune diseases. Then there's uh, lifestyle diseases. And all these things you go, well, it's got to be a miracle. It's an absolute miracle that most people don't have a thousand diseases that they're dealing with. You know, most people have something they're dealing with. But you got to look at the miracles of life. You got to look at the miracles of uh, um that innate wisdom that runs the world and just be happy about it, be excited about it. Uh, you know, have that childlike wonder of, Oh, I wonder how this happens. You know, you, you, you put green grass in a, in a brown cow that gives you white milk that turns into yellow butter. That's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So, so look for the good, you know, the, the extraordinary life is, is looking for the wonderful, amazing things. Cause if you look for it, you'll find it. Yeah. You've given away so many great insights and little gems and um, throughout this uh, conversation, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to? I have a website, drrashidian.com and there's a way to contact me through that. Um, we have another website, midatlanticclinic.com, which is more geared towards chiropractic. 
Um, and then we have a YouTube channel called Real Chiropractic. And uh, we put some patient stories in there. I, I talk about some of these things about stress and so on on that. So feel free to do that. You can connect with us through Facebook as well. Our Facebook page is called Mid-Atlantic Clinic. Um, and those would, would be the best ways. I'd love to hear from you and uh, love to connect with you and continue conversations with, with your audience. Brilliant. And we'll put those links in the show notes so it's easy for people to connect with you. Thank you. Dr. Mir, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, what a incredible life you have lived so far. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of amazing things that continue. You have never let adversity get the best of you. But you've, you've used that opportunity, uh, the opportunity from the adversity to grow, learn and make it part of your mission. You know, for someone who can really grasp what they want to do in the world at a such a young age is really, really powerful and important because there's very few that actually get that opportunity to feel your passion when you start talking about the human body and performance and, and how stress can, can work with you and against you and how we can um, manage our bodies through very clever ways of living our life and things like that as well. The stress-proof life is has got some great, simple, easy things to remember to look after your body so you can live a healthier, happier life. And so I really appreciate you sharing those with us today. Um, I'd love to meet your family sometime and I, I can get from you that they're, they're a great family who's led in a very, very good way. And thank you so much for making a difference in the world with what you do. Uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a fascinating conversation with Dr. Amir Rashidian, the stress proof life on the active CEO podcast. You know, thank you to everyone who rose above in 2020 and did things not because they were easy because, but because they needed to be done. You know, for those people who stared crisis in the face and said, I've got this. Refused to let distractions derail their journey. Found light when everyone else saw fog. Stood tall when people looked at someone to lead them. Endured a, a roller coaster of emotions through their calming presence. Innately switched to innovate rather than stalemate. Gove hope in a world that for many felt empty. Inspired possibility during vulnerability. Showcased that it takes a lifetime to become an overnight success. And most importantly, connected communities when people needed it the most. Thank you for everyone for making a difference in 2020 and all the best in making 2021 matter. Now, if you need someone by your side, maybe a coach or a mentor to, to help you get through the switch from 2020 to 2021 and discover how you will make a difference or upgrade the way you're already making a difference, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I wish everyone a safe and enjoyable Christmas, whether it's with your family face to face or virtually. You know, as we know, the world is 
ensuring that we need to be adaptable and agile through these times. So thank you for being part of the Active CEO podcast. I'm Craig Johns and this is the Active CEO podcast with ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.